0: Hi, I'm Connie Loises.
1: And this is Alex Gove.
0: And this is Strictly VC Download.
1: Hello, listeners. We are back in the saddle again after a nice break visiting friends and family. So nice to travel again, although who knows how long that will last given rising concerns about the Delta variant. Today we are departing from our standard format to bring you not one but two interviews. The first is with New York Times tech reporter Shira Frankel, who is co-author with Cecilia Kong of An Ugly Truth Inside Facebook's Battle for Domination, which came out this past June. In The Ugly Truth, Frankel and Kong break down Facebook's long history of begging for forgiveness rather than asking for permission, a pattern of misbehavior that is especially relevant and egregious in light of Facebook's alleged role in spreading misinformation about COVID vaccines. Next up, Connie talks to the always irrepressible Jeff Clavier, founder of Uncork Capital, a seed stage VC firm that has backed such hits as Poshmark and Postmates about big firms like Tiger that are slinging money around and causing valuations to skyrocket. Never one to back down from a fight, Clavier calls BS on investors that think money alone ensures success. Jacques, Hughes. First up, Shira Frankel.
0: Shira, thank you so much for joining us today. Congratulations on your book, An Ugly Truth. It's a great read.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having
0: me. Absolutely. So sure. I thought we could start with some of the week's biggest news, which centers on Facebook shutting down the accounts, of course, of these New York University researchers whose tools for studying advertising on the network the company said violated its rules. A lot of people think those objections don't hold water. As often is the case, Democratic senators have sent the company a sternly worded letter grilling it on its decision to ban these scholars. How does the situation right now fit into your understanding of how
2: Facebook operates? It was interesting when that news came out. I was struck by how it fit a pattern that we really showed in this book of Facebook taking what seems like a very ad hoc and piecemeal approach to many of its problems. This action, the step that they took against NYU was surprising because there are so many others that are using data in the way that NYU is, including private companies, commercial firms that are using it in ways that we don't fully understand. NYU, the academics there were actually quite transparent in how they were collecting data. They didn't hide what they were doing. They told journalists about it and they told Facebook about it. So for the company to take action against just them, just as I should note, they were about to publish some research that may have been critical of Facebook and may have been damaging to Facebook. It just seems like a one-off thing and really getting to the root of Facebook's problems about what data the company holds about its own users.
1: Shira, it seems like Facebook has made a science of apologizing after the fact for its misdeeds. And the back cover of your book shows a string of apologies that Zuckerberg and Sandberg have issued over the course of Facebook's life. Do you have any sense that investigators in Congress are onto this strategy and may demand more accountability for more recent indiscretions, such as the events of January 6th?
2: Thanks, Alex. I'm glad you noticed the back cover, because that was quite intentional. You know, Celia and I noted those own apologies in our reporting, and we just thought, it's so stark. The pattern here is so stark of the apologies that come after the fact. And yes, I think lawmakers are absolutely noticing that and seeing that. And. After the book came out, I actually spoke to one lawmaker who read our book and said, it's one thing if they apologized once and then we saw a substantial change happen to the company. But what these apologies are showing us is that they think they can get away with just an apology. And then changing really surface level things at at the company, but not really getting to the root of the problem. So you brought up January sixth, which is something that we know Congress is looking at. And I think that that what lawmakers are doing is going a step beyond what they usually do, which is to say, what did Facebook do around January sixth in this specific day? And did it prevent people from orchestrating violence on their platform? But They're taking a step back from that and saying, how did Facebook allow groups to ferment on the platform for months ahead of January 6th? And how did their algorithms drive people towards these groups? And how did their piecemeal approach to removing some groups, but not others, allow this movement known as Stop the Steal really take off and recruit new people? And I think that's fascinating because until now, they haven't taken that extra step back to understand the whole machinery behind Facebook.
0: But I guess, again, if Facebook is not willing to share that data in a granular way, I just wonder how fruitful these investigations
2: will really be. Yeah, I I think that's a really great point. We reported in The New York Times that Facebook, when it was asked by the White House for this prevalence data on COVID misinformation, the idea being how prevalent is COVID misinformation, they couldn't give it to the White House because they didn't have it. And the reason they didn't have it is that when their own data scientists wanted to start tracking that over a year ago at the start of the pandemic, Facebook did not give them the resources or the mandate to start tracking the prevalence of COVID misinformation. I think one thing lawmakers can do is pressure Facebook to do that in the future and give them firm deadlines for when they want to see that data. Honestly, every researcher will tell you this, but Facebook is the only company that has the ability to monitor that thing on its own platform. It is up to Facebook to empower its own data scientists, to give them the mandate to track things from extremist movements to COVID misinformation. And if they want to move the dial on this, they know as a company that they need to start reporting and being transparent about really granular data, like which groups of people, which parts of the United States are seeing this misinformation? How is it reaching them? Are they being recommended into the groups? That's what academics, researchers, lawmakers really want to see because it's only then that they can even start to get their hands around what problem they have here.
0: And Shira, I wonder, based on your reporting, if you think it's a structural issue within Facebook that it doesn't have these systems in place already, or if it's very much by design. I, I thought it was really interesting when in the book you talk about Russian activity on the platform leading up to the 2016 elections. You talk about the company's then chief security officer, Alex Demos, coming up with a special team to look at Russian election interference. And afterward, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg say they're clueless and they're frustrated and they don't know why they weren't presented with his findings. And I just thought, I wonder if Mark Zuckerberg chooses to be left out of certain information flows in order to maintain plausible deniability, or if there's really some problem there where the company's simply just not communicating adequately internally.
2: Yeah, you know, it's a great question. We were doing reporting for this book. We really wanted to get to the bottom of that. Did Mark Zuckerberg and Cheryl Sandberg Ignore or avoid knowing what there was to know about Russia, or were they just kept out of the loop? And ultimately, I think only Mark Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg can answer that question. What I'll say is that early on, about a week or two after the 2016 elections, Alex Damos goes to them and says, There was Russian election interference. We don't know how much, we don't know the extent, but there definitely was something here. We want to investigate it. And even after that, even after being told that startling news, Mark Zuckerberg in that meeting says an expletive, which I won't repeat here. They didn't ask for daily or even weekly meetings to be updated on the progress of the security team. And, you know, I, I know that this is the chief executive of a company and they've got a lot on their plates. But you would think if your security team said to you, hey, an unprecedented thing happened on our platform. Democracy was potentially harmed in a way that we didn't foresee or expect. You would think that as the head of the company, you'd say this is a really huge priority for me. And I'm going to ask for regular updates and meetings on this. We don't see that happen. And that lets them months later be able to say, well, we didn't know. We weren't totally up to date with things. I I, I just wonder how much of that is is by choice.
1: Yeah. You quote an executive in the book who says, you can't disclose what you don't know. So that seems to foot with that.
2: And there's another executive in that chapter who we interviewed who said that when Alex Stamos first came to them with his information... There was a sense of, oh, man, why did he go looking for this? Like, if we didn't know about it, it would be better for us as a company. But now that he's told us about it, we have to do something. And there was a sense, this executive says, that you don't want to bring bad news to the heads of the company. And there's a lot of things that they'd rather just not know about.
1: The information about the Russian hacking and Alex Stamos' presentation to the board is fascinating and I thought it was interesting that you cite an incident where two product gurus at Facebook, Andrew Bosworth and Chris Cox, criticized Stamos for not coming to them first with that information, even though they are not in Stamos's reporting chain. It seemed to me to be evidence that the company still operates like a startup mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and tries to figure things out as it goes along. Is that how it came across to you?
2: Yeah. In a sense, it does. There's almost this games of Thrones-esque thing happening among their C-suite, the executive ranks, where everyone is constantly trying to be the closest person to Mark Zuckerberg, the closest person to Sheryl Sandberg. And Therefore, the bringer of good or bad news. But I think what was happening there is that Bosworth and Cox didn't like the fact that they were caught unaware and then they felt like they were going to be punished or reprimanded by Mark Zuckerberg for not knowing about what was going on, even though it wasn't in their part of the company. I I thought that was a really interesting moment and it said a lot about how both of them, as very senior and longstanding members of Facebook, are still in a sense courting Mark Zuckerberg's goodwill.
0: That's super interesting. It sounds very much like some administrations (laughs) that we've seen in Washington. Speaking of the Game of Thrones analogy, I thought the passages in the book about uh, a department within Facebook with an eagle-eye view, you said, into the daily workings of Facebook employees was so interesting. You'd reported that they can even determine whether an employee's phone was in close proximity to that of a reporter from a news outlet that had run a scoop about the company. You talk specifically about a Gizmodo reporter whose roommate, a contractor, was fired after the company hacked into this individual's Gmail account and read email he'd sent off. Still, we've seen a steady stream of leaks that have become reminiscent of what we saw with Yahoo a decade ago. Do you think employees have gotten savvier about the way they're
2: tracked, or is there less reason to fear that they'll be fired? I think they've just gotten much savvier. I mean, I'd say for close to three years now when I've gone to meet Facebook employees, sources at that company. We've just prearranged every meeting. And I've arrived not bringing a cell phone or my laptop. I just come carrying a notepad. And generally what I do is is I just plan the next meeting with them at that meeting. So I know already, okay, in a month's time or six weeks time or whatever it is, I'll see you again at this location. And that avoids any trace. We spoke to over 400 people for this book. The vast majority of them still work at Facebook and no one has been caught or fired by the company, despite what we know is a very aggressive campaign by Facebook to find the, the people who spoke to us for this book. These are tech company employees. They know exactly what their company is capable of and they know how to avoid being found. And I think what's interesting is rather than understand that and see that, oh, this is a problem for us as a company because employees are unhappy. So they're leaking to the press. Instead, Facebook takes this approach of really trying to crack down and giving lengthy speeches to employees about how journalists aren't to be trusted and that leaking results and being fired. And, and they've gotten very aggressive about that. And, and a lot of employees have really, I, I can't tell you how many employees, I'll put it this way, I can't tell you how many employees have reached out to me because a manager or an executive spoke to them and said, don't you dare leak to the press
1: of the relationship between Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg is fascinating and very complex. And I'm wondering, is there one moment that you can identify when Sheryl Sandberg began to lose influence with Mark Zuckerberg?
2: Hmm. I think it was... I'm going to pick two moments, I'm sorry. But I do think it was really two things. I think that in his mind not getting ahead of Russian election interference. The fallout from that revelation in September of 2017, when Facebook did go public, he was angry about how Facebook was depicted in the press and his sense of it was that she was not on top of it, especially with people in Washington that she was supposed to be close to and have a friendship almost with. And then Cambridge Analytica is the second moment where Mark Zuckerberg, we know, spoke to people around him and spoke to Sheryl Sandberg as well about his anger over her handling of that. One one thing I'll note that I found interesting is that The argument could be made that both of those were product mistakes, that they happened under his part of the company. I mean, certainly Cambridge Analytica happened under a division that reported directly to Mark Zuckerberg. And his anger at Sheryl Sandberg had to do with public perception and PR and certainly how Washington saw that. And I think it's interesting that his anger is directed at her rather than at his own part of the company that allowed that data out into the wild in the first place.
1: Mark Andreessen once said that all of his portfolio companies wanted a Sheryl. Do you think this is still the case? And how do you think the perception of Sheryl Sandberg has changed?
2: You know, I think not just Mark Andreessen, but others, obviously in the Valley, have said this, have had this idea. And to me, it actually stems from something quite problematic, which is this idea that you should have these founders of companies that are boy geniuses, boy wonders. I'll note here that they usually are depicted as male and that they will be left to come up with all the fantastic product ideas. And then somewhere off to the side, there'll be someone else, male or female, who's doing all the day-to-day logistics logistics and operations on all the practical things that make a company run, which includes safety and policy and relationships with Washington, DC. I think a lot of Facebook's problems came from that division between two sides of their company. And I think that in the last year or so, at least in my experience, companies I've talked to seem to have started to understand, hey, maybe having those two sides of the company as separate, is problematic. I mean, if you want a product that is safe and takes user privacy into account and takes security into account, then those teams have to be ingrained into the fabric of the company. The, the engineers need to be listening to the privacy experts and the security experts. And I certainly think some of the newer companies coming out of Silicon Valley right now are thinking about that. Though, obviously, I'll note there's still a lot of company founders out there who want to move fast and break things and do things the Mark Zuckerberg way. Shira, sure. also curious
0: to know if you think. Sandberg has been far less in the public eye than she once was because of Mark Zuckerberg not wanting her to play as prominent a role or because she was starting to get criticized. You mentioned this scene at a new establishment summit hosted by Vanity Fair. She was being interviewed with Katie Couric, and apparently she was very unhappy how the interview evolved um, and
2: she was put in the hot seat. What do you think is driving that? I think it's a combination of things, but I think firstly, Mark Zuckerberg himself has wanted to be more in the public eye. We've seen him taking a more front and center approach to policy decisions. That Georgetown speech that he gave about political speech stands out in my mind as him doing something that we normally would think of Sheryl Sandberg as doing. We note this in the book that it used to be that there were just two people at the top of the company. And now there's one in many, Nick Clegg and Chris Cox and many other people have emerged as people who give interviews, who appear at conferences and summits. It's not just Sheryl Sandberg anymore.
0: You talked about potentially lawmakers mandating changes within Facebook. Again, we see the same cycle play out. I don't think we've actually seen an apology where it comes to this vaccine issue or misinformation issue, but it's like with gun control. Facebook has a huge army now of D.C. lobbyists. It also has an ownership structure, obviously, where Zuckerberg wields more power than, I don't know, nearly anyone on the planet. Mm -hmm. How practical is it to think that we're going to see changes, especially in an administration where, of course, there's a lot that's wrong with this country and the the clock is ticking?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. I'm going to quote my co-author, Cecilia Kong, because she has lived in Washington and reported from Washington for over a decade. And so I trust her more than anyone else on this. But she's been saying that she hasn't seen this much energy in Washington among both Republicans and Democrats in a long time. There's this sense that they really want to, quote unquote, do something about Facebook, It's a question of what they do and what they tackle. And as we know, antitrust laws in this country were created for oil and steel. They were not created for a modern tech company. There's also a sense that regulators are just going to try and figure out what does regulation of Facebook even look like. So the energy is there. I just think it might move a lot more slowly than certainly people in Silicon Valley are used to.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, I'm certainly interested to see what happens with the Section 230 stuff. We had interviewed Steve Case last year about the earliest days of that regulation, which he helped – to persuade lawmakers to include in a bill because AOL at the time was a nascent company. And he said, if I'm getting sued left and right, it'll never get off the ground. Shira, I'm just wondering separately what you think of Facebook's ban on Donald Trump and whether it has in any way hurt users' engagement with the platform. I mean, obviously, its revenue is off the charts. But as you've noted in in interviews elsewhere, Trump created this stream of content, some of it information, some of it misinformation, that people couldn't seem to resist reading. I guess, has it just been supplanted by other salacious uh, content?
2: or? <laughs> yeah, I, I think Facebook is the only one that knows the answer to that. And I am sure that they are internally looking at how much engagement among Americans has gone down, or if it's gone down, since they booted Donald Trump from the platform. I mean, you have to remember here in the United States, certainly on, on Facebook, at least the traditional Facebook blue app product, a lot of the users skew fairly old, especially compared to the rest of the world. And so I think that a lot of those older users did gravitate towards Donald Trump and whether they, they hated him or loved him, they engaged with his content. And so I am wondering myself, what drop, if any, Facebook has seen in daily engagement on its platform, unless Facebook decides to reveal those numbers, which I don't expect they will, or someone decides to leak it, in which case my, my email box is always open. I don't know that we'll ever know know the answer.
1: You said in the book, in the prologue, that you approached Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg and that Sheryl Sandberg agreed to some off-the-record interviews with you, but then decided that she didn't want to move forward with those interviews when she heard that the tone of your book was negative. Have you heard anything more from Sheryl Sandberg's camp about the book?
2: We have heard from Sheryl Sandberg's camp since the book came out. Even before the book came out, I'll say they weren't happy with what they assumed was going to be her portrayal in the book. So I think they came into it with a lot of assumptions. Some of them not right. And after the book came out, we obviously saw Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg do a, I think of it as a photo shoot where they strolled next to each other and made sure photographers got their photo. And quite a few statements were released to the press in which they said that Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg were as close as ever and that she was as important at the company as she ever was. I will just note that despite all that, I had close to a dozen executives slash managers at Facebook reach out to me after the book was published and said, you got it right. She is being sign-lined. is a feeling within the company that she's not as powerful, that she doesn't have Mark Zuckerberg's ear the way she once did. And so I think they can protest all they want, but the most senior levels of their company are, are seeing this and agreeing with what we essentially saw and what we documented in our book.
0: Shira, so you've written this wonderful book. You cover the company closely. What are you working on now? What do you think is the <laughs> next uh, big thing to know about What's cooking at Facebook?
2: Yes, well, I'm definitely taking a breather before I attempt anything remotely looking like a book. Cecilia and I are both very interested in where regulation goes, but I think in the next six months to a year, there are two things that are fascinating me. One is COVID misinformation It's the worst problem for Facebook because it's been growing on the platform for close to a decade. It's got deep roots across all parts of Facebook and it's homegrown. It's Americans that are spreading this misinformation to other Americans. So it challenges all their tenets on free speech and what it means to be a platform that welcomes free speech, but also hasn't drawn a clear line between what free speech is and what harmful speech is, especially during the time of the pandemic. So I'm really curious to see how they handle the fact that their own algorithms are still pushing people into to anti-vaccine groups and are still promoting people that definitely off the platform spread incorrect information about COVID and about vaccines. The second thing for me is right now we're going into a year where there's a lot of really important elections to be held in other countries with populist leaders, some of whom are modeling their use of Facebook after Donald Trump. And after banning Donald Trump, I'm very curious to see how Facebook deals with some of these leaders in other countries that are testing the waters much in the same way that he did.
1: It seems like Facebook's response to criticism about the amount of COVID misinformation on its platform has been somewhat petulant. It is demanding more credit for spreading news about the vaccine, but one would think it could be a little bit more accommodating in accepting criticism about its platform?
2: Well, it goes back to what we started with about patterns at Facebook, which is they often do this. We had it in our original New York Times article, which led to the book Delay, Deny, Deflect. This is a deflection, right? It's like, this isn't important. What's important is that we sent all these other people to the CDC page. And I think it goes back to their core thinking, which is a lot of the executives at Facebook still believe that the platform does more good than it does harm. And they'll say that in interviews. They'll say, well, look at all the good we do. Look how many people we sent accurate information about the vaccine. And I think as reporters, our answer is like, well, yes, that's good and well. But if you're also driving people towards bad information about vaccines, bad information about the pandemic, even if it is, I'm just putting out a number there 1%, that is, in the time of a pandemic, hugely damaging. And important to note, because when you're a platform with over 3 billion people, 1% is a lot of people.
0: It's really been uh, eye-opening for us. We just came back from a trip to the Midwest to see family, and it really does seem like solidly half, possibly even more, (laughs) including family members, are buying into this uh, misinformation. Apologies to family members who may be listening to this.
2: I see it too, and especially on WhatsApp. Friends and family that live in other parts of the world are constantly forwarding me misinformation on WhatsApp, which is really interesting because obviously this is something Facebook can't monitor. And as it moves towards encrypting all of its messaging platforms, it's very tricky because Facebook can't really see, unless people volunteer, what people are sharing on WhatsApp. So seeing that misinformation run rampant in other languages is also, I think, extremely concerning.
1: And it also connects back to the title of the book and Basra's memo, where he essentially says that we believe in connecting people no matter what happens. Right.
2: <laughs> right. And I mean, the continuation of that, right, is that maybe bad things will happen, right? Maybe people will die. Maybe people will get hurt. But that ultimately, the greater good is why we do this. And I think that, again, it goes back to this idea of we might break a few bags, but <laughs> we're doing a good thing. And I think there are many people across the world who are saying, well, what are those few eggs that are being broken?
0: Shira, I know you're busy. I so appreciate you taking the time. Congratulations again on your success. And we are always looking out for your next story in The Times.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for reading the book.
1: Like Shira Frankel, Jeff Clavier of Uncork Capital has many ugly truths to discuss. But first, a word from our sponsor.
0: This episode of Strictly VC Download is brought to you by Tegas. In today's fast-paced market, VCs are looking for ways to build conviction quickly and shorten their time to term sheet. Tegas can help. VCs like Spark Capital, Thrive Capital, and Redpoint use the Tegas platform to get up to speed on new companies or markets in hours instead of days. Just log in for access to more than 20,000 investor-led expert calls covering companies from seed stage to IPO. Curious about Tegas? Request your free trial at www.tegas.co backslash StrictlyVC today. That's www.tegas.co backslash StrictlyVC.
1: And now, as promised... Here's Connie's interview with Jeff Clavier, a longtime angel investor who founded Uncork Capital in 2011 to back very early-stage startups. Uncork currently has over $500 million under management and is currently investing out of two funds, a $100 million seed fund and a $100 million opportunity fund earmarked for larger investments. Thanks to the success of Poshmark and Postmates, Uncork has already returned investors' capital for both funds. Here's Connie's conversation with Jeff, which begins in media stress.
0: The narrative of old school venture capital. Old
3: school venture capital, which is let's just go in, put in capital and then do a bunch of work to help founders. That is still happening. And Mm -hmm. the fact that there is now a narrative, which is, Let's just bring in the capital and not the hell is just BS in my own opinion, because I just see the work I do every single day. And there's just a lot of advice, mentoring, super tactical aspects, very strategic aspects being discussed and advised. And if someone doesn't do that work, then the company is actually not doing as well, right? Because in every single company that got to multi-billion dollar outcomes in the portfolio, there's always a bunch of things that we did and advise and suggested that made the company do something different and better. The whole idea that you can just push a bunch of cash in a company and just hope for the best.
0: I mean, I guess at a later stage, maybe it can happen when there's some you know obvious traction and metrics. And I guess that's the Tiger model that other... Yeah,
3: we have Tiger in a couple of companies and we'll see how that goes, right? I'm excited for the companies that they got so much cash on good terms easily. But I'm also concerned that the day-to-day support infrastructure that this is supposed to provide won't be there for them. So we'll just see, I think. You can't assume that whatever happened in the past is going to continue in the future. But I'm just nervous that this whole flight towards, hey, let's just push capital and not help is actually fundamentally not supporting entrepreneurs, which is really what I'm about.
0: Right. I know you're very focused on making sure they have the right foundation, but I do wonder, and of course, I'm sure we've talked about this in the past, in recent years about SoftBank, but it's great if Tiger invests in a company, it gives the company added credibility, if Tiger's a sexy name, but when these fallen investors are approaching companies every few months, is that good news? Is that bad news? How do you handle that as an early stage investor? I mean, I would think that you feel conflicted.
3: On one side, if the terms are good and the money is good, then it's better to have the capital on the balance sheet rather than not, right? As Kevin Hearts told me a bunch of years ago, you never go bust when you have $100 million on the balance sheet. And so I'll just take the money if the fundraising is good. Mm-hmm. When asked why we were raising money, I don't remember which round that was, even though we just didn't need the cash. And so there's an element to that. The problem is that When the company's valuation is completely disconnected from reality and multiples that they have actually proven, it's becoming concerning. And and I have a case with one of my companies, which did a great series A, did a great series B ahead of time, and now being preempted for a series C. And the valuation is just completely disconnected from their actual reality. And so I'm excited for the company because I have no doubt they will catch up. But this is the point they will have to catch up at some point. I would never give an entrepreneur advice, just forego. The, the opportunity to raise money if ever it's a great investor and, uh, and the valuation is good, but there are certain limits because you could just raise capital if you're a hot company forever and, and actually just not focus on the real thing, which is, okay, I'll just raise a bunch of money. What does that mean? right yeah. What does that mean in terms of the team I have to build? What does that mean in terms of the pace at which I'm going to hire? What is the quality of the hires I'm going to make? And so on and so forth. And that's really the reality we face these days the good news is we raised over a billion dollars in follow-on in the in the portfolio we announced uh, this morning or yesterday, LaunchDarkly raising $200 and That's an incredibly awesome company, so I'm very excited for them. But you just have to put this money to work in a very, very smart way. And that's really where you want to be very thoughtful.
0: But doesn't that make it also harder to hire if people are coming in and the valuation's already sky high?
3: It is. I mean, you know, it's a super competitive market out there, so it's a balance between making people who are potentially Mm risk-averse, comfortable that the company they're joining has a ton of cash on the balance sheet, and therefore it's not at risk. It's no longer really a startup, but there's still sort of a lot of upside, right? And so you want to make sure that you have a a good message, which is, hey, we have X tens of millions or hundreds of millions on the balance sheet, but we're just getting started. Mm -hmm. And in the case of uh, LaunchDarkly, which just got priced at $3 billion, I think there's just still a massive multiple to be gotten from there. And that's why we decided as a firm, even though we're seed stage, we've actually invested in every single round that they raised, including the $3 billion round.
0: Where were they valued last time around? And and when did they raise their last round of finance? Uh,
3: I think it was 800 something. And that was like a year, year and a half ago.
0: Okay. So that's almost like forever ago. and
3: uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? What time. were they doing? But the thing is that they were just ignoring investors until someone put a uh, valuation in front of them saying, okay, I'm going to pay attention. But the company has been executing incredibly well. And the key metric at LaunchDockly is easy, right? It's a company which is in the developer tools space Mm. and they do feature flag enablement that helps product teams to turn on and off flags in their product so Mm. things can be enabled. We measured the number of feature flags enablement per day, right? And so when we invested, they were doing a few a thousand and then a few million. And now they're doing 20 trillion feature flag enablement per day. So when you see those kinds of numbers, 20 trillion times a day, it means that the company is really building something meaningful.
0: Is it the pandemic? Is it how we've broadly restructured work that's driving this? I feel like everyone was saying last year that this pandemic has caused us to get pulled 10 years into the future. It certainly seems like Tiger started writing checks like crazy right around the same time. I'm just wondering, is there anything else to the the fact that the the game on the field has changed so dramatically in the last 12 to 18 months?
3: So the pandemic has really changed the game in terms of fundraising efficiency for founders. There's absolutely no doubt about that, where they used to have to go up and down Sun Hill Road and meet people face-to-face and deal with people's schedules or whatever. And now we know... When we meet someone who is pitching us at 4, 5, 6 p.m., that they probably have had 10 other Zoom meetings with other investors because they were completely ravaged and, and tired, <laughs> right. and they couldn't even find their actual sort of narrative anymore. But it's actually been super efficient for founders to pitch way more people. And when you pitch way more people, typically more offers and people are getting more aggressive and so it's a supply and demand situation mm-hmm. there's also the fact that as an industry we've just returned record cash to our investors everyone you talk to has had multiple outcomes we we just returned our fund three and and our plus fund on on pushmark to investors a few weeks ago so they're thrilled and so there's not gun shy they want to invest more in venture and that's right. why you've had record ipos record MA, record investing and record investing into vc funds in 2021
1: the it's thing is okay. the pandemic
3: wasn't as dramatic as we had anticipated 16 17 months ago where if you had asked me in march 2020 what would happen i would have said oh it's going to take time people are going to so sort of do portfolio triage and figure it out and they're going to be slow and so on and so forth and None of that happened, right? Six weeks later, we're back into it. We have done 14, 15 investments during the pandemic, which is basically like one deal a month, Mm -hmm. all with investing in entrepreneurs we've never met. And we became very comfortable with that. So it's just that there's just a bunch of good deals and you don't want to miss them.
0: You just said you returned your last fund and your last opportunity fund. And I missed, what were the big winners of those funds?
3: That one was on Pushmark. But just a few months ago, we had returned the fund on Postmates. And so we're just like doing extremely well as a firm. That's
0: great. I'm just wondering, again, what are the ripple effects of moving at this velocity? One of my colleagues at TechCrunch had written a story that I thought was interesting about a venture board member who a founder wanted off his board because he was upset because the board member had invested in a company that he thought was a little bit too close to his own. And of course both of them see the situation very differently. But I did think, isn't that inevitable when everybody's moving so quickly that there's going to be conflicts that weren't thoroughly explored? I'm just wondering if that's something that you've encountered yourself or seen, or if you're seeing other possible breaking points, because again, things are just moving at such a clip like we've never seen before.
3: Yeah, no, that's an excuse. I'm sorry. Like, At the end of the day, either you promise to your entrepreneurs that you will never invest in something which is competitive to their company. And if ever there is something which feels too close, you basically go to the company and you say, Hey, are you okay with me investing in this company? We think it's not competitive, but at the end of the day, it's your choice, right? And you make that promise and you actually enforce it. Or you're just like, Oh, you'll just invest in anything I want. And if ever invest in competitive things, then whatever, right? And the fact that you piss off your entrepreneurs because of what you invest in is just such a brand damage because in this environment, the reason why we basically invest in everything that we're interested in is because we introduce our entrepreneurs and they are our strongest advocate, right? If ever you damage that, then just think about the potential outcome. So I don't buy this notion that, oops, I didn't really sort of potentially invest in something which. I didn't realize was competitive. My bad. No, that's bullshit. It's actually intentional and they don't care. And they don't care about their companies. They don't care about the entrepreneurs. They just want to invest in anything that's shiny. And I'm sorry, but that's just not what we do. Are
0: you seeing any other behavior that's new, either on this part of venture investors, potential syndicate partners or the founders themselves? Are they asking for anything new or different or behaving in a way that is
3: novel i think it's not novel it's just crazy evaluations where people can't compete on value add they will compete on price Mm -hmm. and so they're just going to throw crazy evaluations to entrepreneurs like when i started this whole thing back in 2004 (laughs) it wasn't uncommon that seed rounds or whatever we did at the time which was the equivalent of a seed round was single digit pre-money evaluation like two pre, three pre, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And then as I ran, raised my first institutional fund in 2007, and then more funds, which just saw the size of the rounds growing larger and providing entrepreneurs more capital. And now in the last few months, 12, 13, 14, 15 pre has been a very common valuation request. And while we still get to lead and invest in the companies that we want, we just don't pay the price that we think is reasonable because there's so much competition that's throwing crazy numbers. And I'm not even talking about those five or $10 million seed rounds at 100 posts that some people are doing, which we'll never do because we just don't operate in those kind of price ranges because you're just trying to price for absolute perfect outcome Mm -hmm. where you say this company will be worth 20 billion and therefore it doesn't matter the price that we should enter. And that's just not happening because the average price I don't think has moved dramatically. There's certainly been massive outcomes in the tens of billions, which is really what's redefining Mm -hmm. the way people think about and model fund outcomes. But getting those is still very unusual. Well,
0: I mean, everyone's like, oh, well... One of the things that's changed is SPACs. Companies can now go public much more easily, which creates more liquidity. I'm wondering if you think that's true. I mean, it's great. We've seen so many companies exit, to your earlier point. VCs are flush. Their LPs are feeling good. But it's hard to see, again, where all these companies wind up? Will these companies that are raising these rounds after rounds after round go public?
3: Some will, most won't. Because at the end of the day, it's not because you sign a SPAC deal that you will actually go public, right? Because the SPAC mechanism really gets the public market excited about backing some new interesting companies. You've seen that reported on TechCrunch, uh, a few companies that were literally indicted by the SEC about lying to their investors, right? And so basically, the way I look at it is that, some people make a bunch of promise to the public market that are chasing yield. And so they say, oh, I'm going to invest in tech because this one, if ever they do a good job, they will figure out what to acquire and will get a good deal. But 18 months, 20 months later, they haven't found something to uh, merge with. And so they just take on whatever they can merge with. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, it's not the, the spec deal, which is hard. It's the pipe deal, right? Mm-hmm. It's the public investor that looks at an opportunity and says, there's just no way in hell I'm going to put my money into this thing, right? And so this packing process is actually the most challenging today. And there's certainly been a, a cooling off of the SPAC world. And I unfortunately spent too much of my time looking at spiking companies. And it's just a total shit show, I'm sorry to say, but yeah. it, it is. There will be some great SPACs a few, and there will be a bunch of toll disasters that will end up in companies going down to zero and a bunch of lawsuits for sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, the whole Lucid Motors thing continues to shock me because I think those sponsors had pedigree and I'm sure the pipe investors did as well. And for everyone to buy into this company where there wasn't a lot of there, there
3: is just really... Because everyone wants to try and find their own Tesla or find their own SpaceX. And unfortunately, they're just not there. Yes, there is a lot of enthusiasm. There's a lot of cash sort of chasing deals. and, And to be honest, it's not because a few SPACs completely bomb and the founders hopefully end up in jail that it will change the fact that there were a few really interesting companies and good deals to be done. But people are just becoming sort of, okay, I want to go and chase this dream that I can actually get one of those crazy returns. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't happen as easily as people sort of would hope. Sure.
0: And then Jeff, you've just beefed up your team a little bit. Congratulations. I was glad glad to see that Andy's co-managing the firm with you now. What's your strategy going forward? Will we see a much bigger fund out of Uncork than we have in the past? Is what you're doing scalable?
3: Yes. I mean, scale is really what we're trying to get to at a small, uh, very humble level. I think that the product that we sell to founders really works. We're always leading or co-leading the rounds that we invest in at seed stage. We write large checks. We do a bunch of work. We help them thick and thin. And we've done extremely well over the past bunch of years with that model. And so I'm super excited to have my partner, Susan, my partner, Trip, to join us because they give us range. They can uh, work with us to lead investments, sit on boards, advise entrepreneurs. And so we got ourselves a bunch of opportunities to back great entrepreneurs. And it's both at seed stage, but also at growth stage. Because unfortunately, over the past couple of days, we heard about Figma. We heard about a couple of companies, which we unfortunately passed on at um, seed stage. And had we had this insight that we should invest uh, our growth fund in those companies' growth stage, mm. I'm sure we'd have figured out how to put a few million dollars into those companies. And that's what Susan and Trips owe us because they've been trained to invest at the growth stage. Okay. And that gives us sort of an additional expertise that Andy and I, well, great investors didn't have. And so I'm super excited to have them on board.
0: That's terrific. And do they have any sector expertise that you guys don't have? I mean, of course, you do consumer-facing deals. You do a lot of enterprise deals. I'm wondering if you are venturing into any new terrain.
3: I mean, we're pretty much covering the gamut with the team now. So Susan is really sort of a through-and-through SaaS investor, and so we're going to double down on the space with Andy, who got us into uh, a lot of really promising developer tools. Trip is really a unique investor because he's done everything from seed to growth. He's done consumer, marketplaces, SaaS, and fintech, which is really an area where I didn't do much. I mean, I was an investor in Mint back in the day, but we hadn't been done a ton of fintech. And basically spending a lot of my time into frontier tech, which is this space tech, quantum, crypto things that I happen to enjoy investing. And so that gives us pretty good coverage for most of the sector.
0: That's great. I'm trying desperately to understand crypto better. What are some of your bets there? Have you made any to date or is that something that's going to be coming?
3: I mean, we saw almost back to back a couple of series A's happening. So we had Makers Place, which is an NFT marketplace Mm -hmm. that I invested in three years ago. Yash wrote Pinterest. He was the first engineer at Pinterest. And Danny was leading the growth team on the engineering side at Pinterest. And so those guys are just an incredible team. And they said, hey, digital art is going to be a thing, and we're going to do it in a way which is crypto-friendly. And that's what plan." planned. That was three years ago. And I had really no idea that this was going to be a thing, but I thought that this was a team of engineers that was just too exceptional to pass on. And so I led that. that sit round, and we announced their $30 million Series A.
0: Were they the ones who were responsible for Jack Dorsey's tweet or my conflating story, uh, company?
3: No, they're the ones who did Beeple. So the highest ever sale, the $77 million bitmap that people sold was on Makus.
0: Oh, interesting. Okay, terrific. That's really great. Well, congratulations. And what's the other?
3: The other is Masari, which is really sort of Bloomberg for crypto. So if you believe that cryptocurrencies and projects are going to be fundamentally a new financial asset mm-hmm. that institutionals are going to have to manage and deal with you need a trusted source of information and that's Misari. so Misari is really bloomberg for crypto and we just announced their um, 21 million dollar series a led by p72 so that was literally in the last few days on tech
0: okay great i know that's the outlet that's great so I'll, I'll check that out what what else do you think we should be covering here
3: that's what i'm trying to figure out but you know i'm not smart enough to figure out the future so i just uh, read every single business plan or docs and link or whatever that people send me and uh, i try to figure out hey what makes sense and i think there's a lot of things happening in the tech side of biotech and so i'm pretty interested in that i'm really excited that a lot of my peers are looking into climate tech so companies that are trying to change the current insane curve of death that we're going to see because the climate is just turning against us. And so oh. I think I'm excited to look at what companies um, we could serve sort of invest in. I think space tech fascinates me. Uh, we're investors in Loft Orbital, which has just launched two, two satellites on a SpaceX rocket a few weeks ago. And it's one of 10 companies which has re- revenue producing assets in space. So we have all those companies which actually have been funded, but not that many have actually launched satellites in space and so those guys are one so I'm, I'm just trying to keep ourselves at the edge of innovation and continue seeing the world through the eyes of entrepreneurs and that's the best job in the world because those guys and gals are really really smart and, and innovative and so it's that's this thing right the pace of innovation and the rate of companies sort of reaching out to us, has actually increased over the past 18 months. It's just been absolutely insane. And we're just the busiest as ever.
0: And then Jeff, before I let you go, I don't see another way into the industry other than what you did, which was to just build up a portfolio and grow your fund sizes over the years. But I'm wondering for somebody who would be maybe an emerging manager spinning out right now, where's the most opportunity or which which area is least, served comparatively is it the series B it always feels like people are you know really focused on the seed and then maybe the series A and of course late stage is completely a shit show right now I would guess series B but I have no idea what's your take on that
3: it's a really interesting question ever since I was a board member of the NVCA and I led their efforts to educate emerging managers into how you actually build firms and, okay. and raise funds which has been pretty successful because yeah. uh, several hundreds or thousands of of people out there. I think it's just easier to raise a seed fund because it's just a smaller fund, right? Raising a Series A or Series B fund A is very competitive. Mm. B, it's like, my friends at Renegade did that and they raised a uh, Series B fund, oh, and I'm super right. excited for them. But that's very very competitive, right? And it's very hard because you're gonna have to write. 10, $15 million checks to get into those companies. And so for me, what matters when I see emerging managers and, and I've been quietly supporting a bunch of emerging managers, mostly you know women and, and people of color in raising their funds, is what are they really uniquely positioned doing? Mm-hmm. And... What can they achieve that other people would not? Whether it's focusing on a community, focusing on the geography, focusing on the demographic, a, a certain trend, just figure out what you could be the best in the world at and just go do that. I think what's challenging for new managers is to be the first generation, like that the OGs have been doing, whether it's first round or us or Mike Maples is doing everything. And we're good at that because we were just so early. Mm-hmm. Back in the early days, right? When mm-hmm. we were investing as angels back in four or five or six or seven. And so there's no real category definition of, oh, we're best at blah. We're just right. good at everything because be we were there early on. Right. Now, if you really want to go and be excel at a given category, you just need to go super deep mm-hmm. and be like almost a reference saying, oh, I'm a great space tech fund. Or, I'm a great biotech fund. Or, I'm a great whatever. Just Pick right. your industry, go super deep, understand all the dynamics of the sector, and then people will just find you because whenever you invest in the space tech, obviously, I'm, I'm lucky to have um, a few investments in the space, whether Angel or through um, And I can use my founders as filters to help me figure out what makes sense or, or not. But you really want to get that expertise going. So you figure out, hey, what's real? Because there's just so much out there. It's very hard to figure out what actually makes sense or what doesn't.
0: Great. Now, Jeff, it's such a treat talking to you every time. And I really am thankful that you took some time out this afternoon to chat. It's
3: always, always the- a pleasure to talk to you. We've yeah. done that so many times over the years.
0: I know, I know. I hope I get to see you in person again in the not too distant future. It's
3: been way too long. That would long. be lovely.
1: That's it. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week at Strictly VC Download.